Good evening, everyone. It's Thursday, Necro Thursday, and we're coming right back at you with another episode of the Necromaniacs Horror Podcast. How's it going, Jeff? So I'm good, man. How you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well. I um, am very far advanced in my packing procedures for my move out of my current location. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's been taking up a lot of time. You got all your U-Haul boxes. Yeah, you know, I've been systematically going through everything, you know, packing it up, labeling the boxes. Uh, you know, everything is pretty much in order. Threw away a bunch of stuff. And, um, yeah, in a few short weeks, I'll be uh, in my new my new spot up in Jersey City. That's awesome, man. Right, so you haven't gotten to the point of packing where, like, it's at the very end and you just start throwing shit in random boxes. No, that's never going to be box. the way I do it, honestly. Uh, you, you know, I, when I moved here to Austin, um, <laughs> I, I said I said the same thing. And then, like, you know, I'm opening up, like, dishware and finding my uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead box set. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, right um, now I'm kind of at the point where I have, like, just uh, a few changes of clothes that I, you know, for, like, a week. You know, like a week's. You know, I, I have a washer dryer here, so I just wash my clothes whenever I want. I have like a couple of forks, a plate, you know, just everything that I need from a day to day basis is out and everything else is boxed up right now, except for like, you know, a couple of things here and there need need like some pack. But I still have several weeks before I'm, you know, a few weeks before I'm leaving. So, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. Good for you. Congratulations. Such a good feeling to to, to start new and uh, be in a new place. You know, it's uh, you know, always sort of rejuvenates me whenever I move. Yeah, I mean, it it's a beautiful town that I'm living in, but it's just there's so much, just so much baggage living here, man. So many just the last three years have just been like just grim, and uh, I just need to get out of here and change things up in my life a little bit, you know. Yeah, totally, man. That's uh, what kind of spurred me leaving L.A. It was just like, it wasn't like anything in particular, but it's just like I'd been here a long time and don't really need to be here anymore, and I'm getting fucking old. So, you know, let's try something new. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've only been here for three years, but, like, it just the worst possible things have happened to me since I've lived here, so I need to leave. Yeah, we also, we moved apartments um, in 2019, and, like, literally, like, a month after we moved, the, the pandemic started. And that, that was, <laughs> so, that, that's exactly what happened to me, man. Just, I, I got here yeah. and then went into two years of isolation, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, the, the place just sort of took on this very depressing vibe, you know? Like, I've I been stuck in here for two years. I'm, I'm a little sick of it. So, what have you been checking out? Anything cool? Uh, a couple things. Well, first of all, Mike, uh, got to give a shout out to Andy Rourke. Rest in peace, Andy Rourke. Um, it's a big Smiths man. Uh, he was one of my favorite bass players. Woke up to the news yesterday and uh, got to say, man, kind of hit me. I understand. Uh, you know, I also like the Smiths and I understand when, when you know, people that you really look up to creatively pass and uh, and the impact it makes on you for sure. Yeah, it's weird because you don't know them, you know, uh, but you, you kind of, in a way, feel like you do. You know, I've been listening to Smith for God knows how long now at this point. And, uh, you know, he wasn't really doing a whole lot, but it's still kind of sad to know that, like, if the Smiths ever really did get back together, he, he won't be there. Also, he was a pretty young man, too. 59, yeah, wasn't yeah. that old. Yeah, he was like... You know, I don't know what the circumstances surrounding his passing were, but that's 
that's far too young, especially these days. You know, longevity seems to be extending, and people live like vital lifestyles into their seventies. Yeah. It seems like you know you got Sylvester Stallone like jumping off roofs, and the guy's like seventy something years old. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it made me think too. If he was only fifty nine when he passed, like he must have been a fucking kid when he was in the Smiths. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like they were all like pretty youngins when they were doing that band. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy because if you think of like nineteen, twenty year olds making music now, like nine out of ten times is garbage. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, there was an anniversary for one of my my guys, you know, Ian Curtis. Um, mm. He. he committed suicide at 23 years old oh my god i know like all that music that he he was involved with was like he was like probably like 18 19 20 years old and he was writing all those songs that's crazy to think man yeah yeah I went, like, at, uh, at like 19 or 20 you write a song like shadow play or something like that it's like crazy to think about that it really is man it really is uh but yeah rest in peace man uh, as far as stuff I've been checking out, uh, last week I mentioned the movie Birdman. Uh, this week is something kind of similar. See, Birdman, I don't know, you've seen it, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, it's supposed to look like one take right. pretty much throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie. You know yeah. it's not, but it looks that way. Yeah. Uh, I watched a movie that was 95 minutes and it really was all one take. Uh, it's called Boiling Point. Oh, and it takes place in a restaurant in London. Uh, okay, not a horror movie, obviously, but, uh, you know, I always take sort of an interest in anything that takes place in, like, the restaurant world because, you know, I worked at a bunch of them when I was a, a younger younger man. Right. And, uh, yeah, you know, just seeing, like, them pulling off like a, an actual one-take movie was, was really impressive. And you, you even, like, stopped thinking about it at some point like oh this is just, they're still going uh if one person makes a mistake you gotta start all the way back at the beginning um <clears throat> so it, it, it's uh it's really good i highly recommend it uh again not a horror movie but just really impressive technically and obviously like acting wise so if you appreciate stuff like that highly recommend it yeah that sounds uh, like so incredibly difficult to do production wise yeah, exactly. And I think I read like they plan on doing like six or seven takes and then just going with the best one. But I think COVID kind of cut their uh, time short. So they only really got to do it a few times. I mean, I can't even imagine the pressure on everyone trying to make that like logistically happen. Yeah, no, totally. I thought that scene in, in True Detective was pretty sick and that was only like a few minutes long. But you just imagine the oh. pre- preparation that goes into that, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, there's some long takes in the, in the movie we'll talk about later. But um, other than that, I haven't been checking out too much. I was telling you off air, like, uh, kind of go revisiting uh, past musical loves. I've uh, been listening to a ton of Pink Floyd in the last two weeks. Right. Um, I was a huge fan. Uh, I went through that phase, like, probably my early 20s, where I think for about two years, Pink Floyd was the only band I listened to. And and I'm meaning that literally. Like I just wouldn't listen to anything else. And uh, I saw some review of of the wall on on YouTube, and it just really made me like go back and and rediscover that stuff and and uh, and how much I love it. Uh, sometimes it's fun to go back and revisit stuff you loved when when you were younger and see the things that you know you remember the things that that, that you loved about it. 
I, I also love Pink Floyd. Uh, a lot of their Do catalog. You? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, it's, they're not a band I talk about a whole lot, but I listen to them quite a bit. And um, mm. yeah, they um, especially uh, you know, obviously Dark Side of the Moon. Everyone loves that, but particularly the Wall and the Final Cut are uh, really yeah. heavy, heavy records for me. Definitely. Absolutely. The final cut is kind of considered like uh, by many fans to be their worst album. And realistically, it is Roger Waters first solo record. I mean, he has complete control of the band at that point. I mean, the guys don't even really play on it. The other guys don't even really play on it that much. They just, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I particularly love that record. I, I guess I discovered it at a really strange time in my life, you know, when I was a little sad boy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very it's a very intense emotional record, and I mean, I remember getting it when I was a kid, and I was just like, you know, wow, this is like so, you know, and I was like a sad boy kid too, you know what I mean? And I was just like, <laughs> oh man, this is like this record's perfect, you know. No one else likes it, you know. I like it. I sit in my room by myself <laughs> yeah. listening to it. I know no one else appreciates the record like I do, and all that kind of stuff. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's all right. I think David Gilmore only sings one song on the record, um, and uh, it, it, it's it's really different for the time. But you, you can see, like, from the wall to the final cut to Roger Waters' first solo record, you sort of see where he was going musically. You know, and that that British German disdain exists to this day, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you yeah. go to, I mean, I know there's a couple of you guys out there that are Brits and I know there's a few Germans out there too that are listening, but like that, that every time I've been, we've, you know, had like a, like a driver over on tour, on tour that was British or German or whatever, mainly Brits would talk shit about yeah. Germany, like constantly, you know, because of they, they got bombed. Their family members were destroyed. Their cities were destroyed by the Germans in World War II. And yeah. It wasn't even that long ago. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I think I remember we did have a, a British driver at one point. I seem to remember him making a few cracks at the Germans' expense. Yeah, you know, and I just, I just, it's a, it's real. You know, it's, it's a heavy thing to think about. Like here in the states, like we're isolated by, you know, we got oceans all around us, and you know, to think that right across that channel, you know, not too far away, you know bombing distance basically is like people that destroyed your families you know it's it's um it's fucking intense you know yeah it's a heavy thing i remember thinking about that a lot on our first uh first time i ever went to europe a european tour like like hey 20 minutes ago i was in a different country yeah <laughs> you know did I, did I ever tell you the story about um i'm not going to mention any names because like this guy's a pretty well-known dude in germany who's like uh in bands and drives other guys around but um so i don't want to implicate him in anything but right uh, the first when anodyne toured europe on our only european tour we had a driver and uh the last night of the tour we stayed in his place and it was um he had like an attic apartment and then there was like an old lady who lived in the sec the first floor and then there was, you mm -hmm. had to go through her apartment somehow, you know, and I uh, suspected they were, they were like related. I didn't know for sure. I couldn't confirm or deny that that was some relative of his. So, um, or, you know, your hours are all crazy. You know, you wake up early and everything or late, or you don't even know what time it is most of the time. I never really put my right. hours straight when I'm over there like that. And yeah, uh, I remember walking through the apartment and I glanced over at the, um, this like, counter like a, a dresser rather with uh mm -hmm. photographs old photos on it like old 
this, there's a photograph of the woman as a young lady with a guy in an SS uniform. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, man. <laughs> it was fucking intense, man. And like, oh, yeah. yeah, I think I might have told you the story before. You did. I remember that. Yeah. It is crazy to go over there and see real, like, Nazi memorabilia. Like, uh, some hotel we stayed at had, like, some Nazi, like, dishware in, uh, in a, you know, behind a display case. Weird thing to display, I thought, but <laughs> uh, yeah. it was there. Yeah. It's... It, like, we're so removed from it over here. Um, and, you know, when you see it, like, right there in front of your face, it reminds you, this is very real. This, this really happened. I had a great uncle who passed years ago who was in World War II. And he, mm. he was in a tank in World War II in the desert, right? He has, I mean, I don't know where, it's probably, you know, somewhere, I don't know where it is now, obviously, this, well, he's long gone, but he had all sorts of Nazi stuff that he took off dead German soldiers. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I just remember seeing that when I was like a young kid and just being like, I thought it was cool, but now I'm thinking about how fucking ghoulish that is, you know? Yeah, yeah. We kind of had this debate on tour. Like, would you have like, a piece of, of Nazi memorabilia if given the opportunity? And most people were like, no, definitely don't want it. And I was like, you know, I, I mean, I, it's almost, it's owning a piece of history or something like that, you know? It, it's, it's heavy, it's got weight to it. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'd want it in my house either. There was um, a long time ago uh, down in South Jersey, there's like all these like uh, outdoor, um, you know, like uh, flea market type things. I forgot. I forgot what they call them out here. But uh, so I remember we were down there one time. We were playing in Philly, I think. And we stopped and just, you know, whatever. We didn't want to drive all the way home just yet. So we were like stopped at one of these places. And this guy had like all this stuff for sale that was like he had like. Um, surplus, like army surplus stuff. And <clears throat> he also had other stuff, quote unquote, right? Like German uniforms from World War II. And I remember looking at one of these like um, jackets, you know, mm. and in the pocket of the jacket were photographs of like the dude's fucking loved ones and shit like that. Oh my god! Like I, I don't know how the guy didn't go through this shit, but it was like in the pocket of, or maybe he put him in there. Maybe that was part of like the the, the, the gig, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's so fucking just heavy, man. You know, this guy was obviously he was killed in action. That's why how his uniform ended up here. And then there's like photographs yeah. of his family and like wife and you know like whatever, you know, just crazy shit, man. Oh man, yeah, that's that's fucking heavy, dude. Um, well, <laughs> what have you been checking out, Mike? Oh, <laughs> oh actually, this kind of fits with what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it was recommended to me to check out a movie on Netflix called Soft and Quiet. <laughs> have Soft you heard of it? Soft and Quiet, oh. No, I don't think I have. Dude, it actually surprisingly fits really well into what we were just talking about. It's, uh, I didn't know much about it. Um, actually, a guy who was going to call in on this show and recommend it messaged me about it and he's like if you want to watch a disturbing movie check this out and he was 100% right and um it's horror adjacent you know there's no supernatural elements to it but maybe we should talk about this movie at some point it's on Netflix and it's okay. about <laughs> how am I going to say this uh, uh white women 
um, (laughs) who have very, very, very strong racial identity. Okay. Okay. I think I've heard of this though. Yeah. Okay. It's a, I can't know. I don't know if I like it or not, but it's, um, it's a pretty, uh, well-made film. Um, the subject matter is like right on the nose these days, especially a lot of the, even some of the dialogue in there is like you've heard people say these things on the far right, you know. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like some sort of like um, Gavin McGinnis, you know, stuff where it's you know like you know we've been uh, told to uh, not be proud of our heritage in the Western world, you know, all that kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? And yeah, it, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's a very I can see people having very strong reactions to this movie. I could see it. Uh, ruffling a lot of people's feathers, and uh, I could see also some nut jobs on the far right empathizing with the characters, you know. And uh, right, God, yeah. yeah, dude, it's it's fucked up. Uh, definitely check it out. Um, maybe I don't know if we want to talk about it at some point, but like it's something to at sure. least to to investigate, you know. Yeah, well, definitely sounds interesting. I, I, you definitely piqued my interest for sure. And on the other spectrum. Um, I've been watching the, uh, you know, the last drive-in with Joe, Joe Bob Big, Briggs. And last right. night, the pos- Possession was the second film. And you know how we both feel about that movie. Oh, yeah. One of the best horror movies ever made. Yeah. So that that's that's fresh in my mind, you know, and just, nice. you know, and it's taking like a, a special uh, place in my heart these days because of the volatile female-male relationship that is depicted in that movie. And, uh. It's a film that depicts yeah. like feeling bad, like feeling every range of bad emotion that you can feel that two a man and a woman can experience with each other. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely taken taken like a, a more real connotation in my life these days. Totally, uh, I remember watching Possession after I got divorced, and it hit a lot different. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah, totally. You know, and uh, but aside from all that, even if you're not. In the in like the uh, the middle of some heavy relationship stuff, um, and you're out there and you're just happy, <laughs> just check it out, and it's <laughs> it'll bring you down, man. <laughs> you know, I, I'm so glad that people are, are getting to discover that movie now because of Shutter, and because uh, I mean that movie lingered in obscurity for a long time, and uh, if you saw it or knew about it or owned a copy of it, like you know, like you, you knew your shit, <laughs> but you know. Uh, it, it's great that though that like um, people are discovering. I've seen it pop up uh, on you know other horror podcasts. People are discussing it, and I think it's finally getting its due. And people are going to finally, uh, you know, this this great sort of obscure film is kind of being brought to uh, more uh, more people's attention. The only thing that would make that movie better, and it's not that this part of the film is bad at all, not by any means, but would make it even more of an intense film is if Neubauten did the soundtrack for it. <laughs> it did not even, it seems like a movie like that is like they would do, you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. Like, especially in the beginning where there's those, those shots of Eastern Europe, about not Eastern Europe, about East Germany with the wall and everything. And like, yeah, you know, these like very like grim, bleak, very German, you know, when I think of German, I think of like the, these like gray skies and like, concrete and stuff like that you know what i mean oh totally and i can yeah, hear like I mean, that that neubauten like mechanical drone you know over these shots you know 
Totally. I mean, you film that movie in Los Angeles, it doesn't work. No, <laughs> you no know? absolutely like, not, man. No. Yeah. Like, the setting is so, so important to that film. I actually have the score. I picked it up last year in um, in Denver. I was out, out there on tour. And, uh, you know, we... we did our thing we loaded in and i was walking around the main drag there i forgot what street that is and uh there was like you know there's all these shops there's like that true brewery companies on that same street and there's like you know these like a bookstore and i happened to walk by a, a, a shop that i would never in a million years think about going into it's like some you know like women's clothing store basically they had like uh you know, you know it's colorado so th- that type of woman you know what i mean Sure. And uh, <laughs> out of the corner, as I looked in there, I saw that they had a, a, a record section. So I just went in, you know, and I, I was like yeah. looking through the records and I found Possession, the soundtrack, the film score. So I bought it. So it was random, random, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, amazing. And, and I just remember, and even cooler, I was like, got a cup of iced coffee and I'm like sitting at this cafe. I was like reading and I had my records out, you know, and like some fairly attractive woman was like, took the seat next to me and she looked over and she was like oh my god the possess- possession soundtrack like where did you get that and i was like well down wow. at that's that white woman's store down the street you know <laughs> it's like all those that's white, very, white, two white very women. random things yeah, yeah. Can you imagine running into just you know in light of my past experiences even knowing any woman who would be into that kind of stuff is is like a a, a very special thing you know yeah, totally. And like I said, the movie's like lingering in obscurity forever. So the fact that she would like anyone would even running into anyone who even knew about it is 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 a rarity. That's yeah. awesome. Before we get rolling, I just uh, we got to shout out our, our buddies here in the um, Horsemen of the Podcasting Apocalypse. Uh, mm-hmm. After you listen to this show, definitely check out Mondays Brandon Legion's Harwolf Six Six Six. Tuesdays Jackie Smith brings you. Into the Necrosphere, the premier extreme metal podcast. Wednesday is Everything Went Black, which is a variety of different things. Uh, Thursday is Necro Thursday, of course. Friday, Break the Apocalypse. Mike Scandato's brother, John, is a co-host on that. And then Sunday, the darkest day of the week, Carl Hikara brings you Soul Knox. And that's, uh, that's a nice week's worth of excellent content for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also have our, our Necrophone uh, voicemail apparatus, and you can call in. And we've yeah. been getting uh, some good good call-ins, man. Uh, so the number to yeah. call in is 908-913-0782. And uh, this week, we've got uh, Braden from Vancouver and Stuart from the Bay Area. Hey, Necromaniacs. This is Braden from Vancouver calling again. Uh, I just uh, had to... Uh, had to call and mention this movie that I had uh, just finished, been meaning to see for a long time, and I feel like it might be of some interest to you guys. Uh, Oni Baba from 1964. It's this old uh, Japanese folk horror film that I would describe as the Japanese soulmate or equivalent almost to The Witch from a few years back. Um, it just captures a lot of the same atmosphere and really takes advantage of the landscape and some of the folklore of its of its respective uh culture and um place uh in which it takes place 
Um, it's set in feudal Japan, and um, it's just got this feeling of legitimate, like a feeling of legitimate myth to it, like something you would read in a storybook. And um, it's some of the imagery. It's it's shot in black and white. Some of the imagery is just incredible. Like it's beautiful, but also horrifying. And just like the witch, it's got this not an overt, but an underlying sense of the supernatural that doesn't really come into play until the very end. And even then, you're kind of questioning it, and it's not overt or um, blatant, which I thought was, uh, which I really enjoy, and I, I, I love to put the wits as well. Um, but yeah, I feel like, um, feel like it might be of some interest to you guys. You guys might find some enjoyment in it. Um, it's a slow burn, um, and just really, really well done and worth watching for the imagery alone. And the soundtrack is really kind of sparse, but very effective and kind of bone chilling. So yeah, love the show guys. Keep it up. Thank you. Hey guys, this is, uh, Stuart out here in the Bay area. Um, been listening to the show for a while, uh, Started listening to it when I was commuting to work before the pandemic, uh, looking for some Wolfman uh, episodes, and I listened to the episode where you were covered the Wolfman and also uh, Wolf Cop. Anyways, uh, got a few recommendations. Um, two older movies and one relatively newer movie. I'm sure you've probably seen some of these, but uh, one is The Sentinel from 1977. Um, that has a lot of people in it. I think Jeff Goldblum is actually in, in it as a small role, and uh, you know Ava Gardner's in it. A lot of famous people. It's kind of about a uh, woman who moves into a apartment building filled with uh, dubious characters. Um, it's pretty cool. Then next is another movie from the '70s, Burnt Offerings. I'm sure you've probably seen that one. Uh, Kind of a cool haunted house movie. Uh, Oliver Reed is in it. Um, very, very good. Um, and then the newer one, uh, I, it's got kind of got a Lovecraft angle to it, but it's not really a cosmic horror movie. Um, I know you guys are into Lovecraft. It's called Incident in a Ghost Land. It's from 2018. And it's kind of a home invasion movie, but with a weird sort of uh, twist going on, especially at the end. So those are some movies uh, I thought you might like, and um, I really enjoy the show. Um, Look forward to it every Thursday. So cheers, everyone. Have a good day. So yeah, thanks guys. It's it's been a lot of fun. Like we love hearing from you guys on the on the voicemail line. It's it's a lot of fun, and I. it gives like a little bit of a personality. Unfortunately, Mike from uh, Pennsylvania didn't call in this week. I always look forward to hearing from him. But, you know, hopefully. Yeah, me too. He really enjoyed. We, we got him to watch uh, Enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And he also has like a lot of good recommendations, which I've been tallying all these recommendations. And I think this is definite stuff that we could address in the coming episodes. And I, I keep them coming, guys. And stuff that a lot of it's stuff we've seen. We just didn't think about covering you know and if there's an interest in us talking about it uh we'll definitely consider it and and these guys brought up uh you know some great films you know don't you think Jeff? yes oh god yeah totally um onibaba 
You've seen it before? Oh yeah, man. That's and and that's um that that's like fits right into non Anglo folk horror. You know what I mean? You know, like when you think of folk horror, you think more of like Britain, you know? But yeah, other countries totally. can have that kind of like deep folklore, you know, sort of stuff. You know what I mean? And, and there's that box set that Severn put out that has a lot of international entries into that genre, which is a genre that I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, uh, I actually own Anibaba. I believe it's in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, that's awesome. If, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's it's really good. Really good. I hadn't thought about it in a long, long time. So, you know, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, he made a great comparison to like The Witch, which, uh, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, that that's actually pretty fucking spot on comparison. I didn't even uh, make that connection. Yeah, and Stuart brought up some good ones. Of course, there's uh, Incident in, in a Ghostland, which is on Tubi right now. And uh, that okay. was directed by Pascal Logier, who brought us Martyrs. And that's, you know, I've, that, I've seen that. You know, I've seen both of those films. And of course, martyrs, yeah. of course, the two classics, The Sentinel and Burnt Offerings. Those oh, are man. classics, for sure. Classics, yeah. Uh, especially Burnt Offerings. Like, I have a, a special place in my heart for that. I saw that when I was just a, a youngin'. I was a kid. And uh, I thought it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen at, at the time. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth uh, revisiting all that stuff. And I, I'm keeping a list of the stuff that we haven't covered yet that you guys are rec- recommending to us, and we're gonna we'll start going through that stuff for sure. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I yeah, I'd be down to cover any of those movies for sure. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Keep them coming. It's a lot of fun. I really like hearing from everybody. And uh, you know, one of you guys, Cam, I'm gonna see you next week and uh, at the at the uh, Hell in the Harbor festival which is actually when this airs it's in two days <laughs> so oh, so yeah i'll see you nice. in baltimore all right man so, almost sounds like a threat <laughs> yeah, i'll see you in baltimore kid you know no no no, no yeah. threats it's all good here yeah. oh by the way tubi man tubi's like buck wild when it comes to horror you know yeah yeah i keep hearing that i mean you can, you have to watch it with ads uh but yeah it's uh it's free and it blows my mind that anyone can sign up for it and watch a movie like Found, which is like, you know, very heavy and very, yeah, you know, that, that's a movie that like, you know, if I had like a nine-year-old kid, I don't know if I'd really want him to watch a movie like that really, you know? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, but I was allowed to watch whatever I wanted and uh, shape me into the person I am today. So, uh, you know, who knows? Lucky us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. So, so, we're so that's going all the way back to uh, ninety nine today, right? Yeah, we got Summer of Sam, uh, released May twentieth, nineteen ninety nine, at Cannes Film Festival, July second, nineteen ninety nine, in the U S. And I think that's I think I saw it that summer actually in the movie theater ninety nine. Hmm. Yeah, did you see it in the theater? No, I think this is one of the first DVDs I watched though. Really interesting. Yeah, uh, my yeah my friend had it. It's uh, 142 minutes long, <laughs> so a bit on the long side. Yeah. Directed by Spike Lee and written by Victor Caliccio, Michael, the great Michael Imperioli and Spike Lee. Great, yes. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Michael Imperioli fan. I, like, I follow him on Instagram. Me too. I think his Me Instagram too. is cool. Yes, awesome. He had a book signing out here in New Jersey, and... Um, 
I was going to go, but there was like a snowstorm or something that day, and I didn't make it out there. Yeah, he's so not the character he's known for. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know not at mean? all. Not in any of the films. Like he's been, he pops up in a ton of movies, and you know, and everyone knows him as Christopher Moltisante from The Sopranos, yeah. and he could be further, couldn't be further from from him. Actually, Imperioli went to high school in the next town over from where I grew up in in uh, in you know outside of New York City. That's right. I remember you saying yep. that. You guys are roughly, roughly the, same the same age. age. We're about. He's a year yeah. older than me, I think. So, and I actually had a girlfriend in the high school that he went to. And uh, yeah, it's really? just, we oh, yeah. maybe could have been in the same spots at the same time or whatever. Yeah, is that hey, funny? I mean, it's entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. it's a small fucking world. It is, you know. A lot, a lot of those like Italian American actors, though, are like that people know from are like kind of all have you know, areas from areas close to where I grew up and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. But sure. This is a great cast. We've got, uh, John Leguizamo as Vinny, Adrian Brody as Richie, the sublime Mira Sorvino as Diona, Diana. Mm-hmm. I, I actually had forgotten that she was in this before I watched it again. Yeah. I'm not going to go through everybody, but just just the main people here. Jennifer, there's a huge You're cast. Right. Jennifer Esposito huge. as Ruby, Ben Gazzara as Luigi, John Savage mm-hmm. has a, a small part in this film, and um, you know anyone who's who's a fan of the Deer Hunter knows uh, John Savage. He plays a guy named Simon. Jimmy Breslin, you know, uh, as himself. Now mm-hmm. the David Berkowitz Son of Sam character was played by Michael. Badaluco. Spike Lee as John Jeffries, a newscaster. Michael Imperioli as Midnight. <laughs> Great character. Yeah. The voice of John Tutoro is Harvey the Dog. Mm-hmm. Once again, another great character actor, Anthony LaPaglia, as Detective Lou Petricelli. Petricelli. Actually, there's one mm-hmm. C, so it's Petricelli. Okay. Roger Yonville Smith as Detective Kurt Atwater. And that's pretty much the main characters, I would say. I mean, there's a bunch of other, like, Cougine, like, dudes in there that are, like, you know, they, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's, like, familiar faces, you know, if you watch gangster movies or movies about New York City and whatever. So there's, like, a bunch of these, like, Cougine Italian guys in there. Oh, yeah, totally. And I, I would say outside of the four main characters, all the other parts are, are smaller, but they're all, everyone's got a great part. Everyone's got a great character to play in this. The thing I like about this movie is, is like, it's, it's I'm going to expand on what you just said. We have the four main characters, but like the, the backdrop of everything, all the, the, the different people weave this like, this like pastiche of like the story. You know, and it reminds me of New York itself, actually. Like when you walk down the street in New York City, you got every type of person you can imagine in your in your viewport. You know what I mean? And like it just that yeah. that whole atmosphere defines that city. You know, and and that's how this this movie. I don't think somebody who hasn't been a New Yorker could have written a film like this. So you know, hats off to uh, to the crew who wrote the movie and Spike Lee for directing it. Yeah, absolutely. Spike Lee knows New York maybe better than almost than any filmmaker. Every every movie he's made about New York, it's just so vibrant and 
and uh, authentic. And you have a lot of different sort of cultures coming together in, in, in this movie. And it never really feels like it hits a false note for me. And also, each culture is specific to New York City. It's like like black culture in New York is way different than in the South. You know what I mean? And like the Latino culture in New York City is way different than L.A. And like even Italian-Americans in New York City are different than Italian-Americans in other parts like Chicago or something like that. You know, so it's very specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And this is the 70s. And, uh, you know, the, the disco movement is in full swing. Punk is is uh, starting to become a big presence in New York City. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting time. And, uh, you know, like it's interesting, too, that uh, the movie is called Summer of Sam. And it, but it's really not about the son of Sam killer at all. It's really sort of about um, one neighborhood and the effect that this uh, serial killer has on the neighborhood, which was a really interesting uh, take on the serial killer film. Yeah, because you don't get into like, like you you think of like some of the more recent entries into serial killer films, um, you know, like Dahmer, where it's all about his, you're inside of his head. You know, Berkowitz right. is almost like a, an element, you know, it's almost like like part of the background. You know, and you just see the anxiety and fear that his presence sort of instills on the the entire city, and how everyone's paranoid. And the paranoia um, is actually the paranoia of Berkowitz is actually more of the villain of this story than the actual murders in some ways. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it. Totally, um, and I like that it just zooms in on this one group of people in in the Bronx rather than like a citywide thing. I mean, you do get some of that, like uh, Spike Lee plays a reporter and, uh, and, you know, he's sort of, uh, you see a little bit of the perspective from the black neighborhoods, but it mostly focuses on this Italian American uh, neighborhood. And just for and, anyone out there who doesn't, isn't, has never been to New York city, the Bronx is, um, is uh, it's like the northernmost borough in New York that is adjacent to Westchester County, which is the suburbs. And there's a couple of different right. bridges. There's the Whitestone Bridge, the Throgs Neck Bridge that connect it to New York City proper. And Spike Lee has a little injection of Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is in Brooklyn, which is way, mm-hmm. way, way south. So the murders are all right. happening in the northern part of the city. And some of the perspectives of uh, Bed-Stuy, do or die, are very much mm-hmm. removed. And Berkowitz didn't go into Brooklyn is what I'm trying to say in, in a roundabout way. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the show Dahmer. What's really interesting about this movie is, you know, like the conversation that was happening around the TV show Dahmer is something that was happening back in 1999 around this film. Like, is this exploitation of uh, the big, is, is this disrespectful to his victims? Um, you know, here we are, like twenty something years later, having having the same conversation about. <laughs> what are your What are your 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 views on that, though? That's that's. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think about that with with respect well, to this film in comparison to Dahmer. I think, uh, well, you know, obviously some films can be exploitive and gross, and you know, Dahmer maybe for some people push a little bit too much uh, up against the line on that. Not, not for me, but I, you know, don't begrudge anyone who disagrees. Uh, I think this movie is, I don't find it exploitive at all. Like, I, I think this is a really unique, interesting take on, 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 on serial killers. Um, 
I mean, I don't know that there's really anything, anything else like this out there that ever took this uh, sort of perspective. So, no, I, I don't think this is distasteful or disrespectful at all. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think there. I mean, Berkowitz is barely in it, really. Yeah. You know, and you're not in yeah. his head. He, you don't even. He's a two-dimensional character in this film. You know, it's like you take the yeah. elements of the things that we know about him, um, you know, and then they put it out there. Like, it's not like the Ultimate Evil, the Maury Terry book, where you're getting into, like, you know, all the conspiracies and his ties to, like, the Process Church and, you know, Manson, and none of that stuff happens in this. It's all just, he's a guy, his his dog, you know, he believes his dog speaks to him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and he goes yeah. out and kills women. Oh, oh, he shoots men too, but like he goes out and, and murders people in the Bronx. That's all you really know about him, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I like the way you put it, where you said this movie is more about the anxiety he created, and that anxiety is really like manifested mostly in the character of Vinny, where like Vinny's a really interesting character, and um, I gotta say, for John Leguizamo, like kills it in this role i don't know if he's ever has he ever been like a lead like the lead actor in a film i can't think of one um that's a good question but he man they he i'm surprised this didn't launch his career in a different you know like to more leading roles but he was fucking great i thought too yeah he's really really good in this um and he kind of plays this i mean complicated guy he's the lead guy so you sort of identify with him but Vinny's kind of a piece of shit and- well what's what's interesting too is is it it a lot of this film has to do with ignorance I think you know what I mean yes and yeah and, uh, you know that's kind of like the the carryaway with this it's like yeah it's a fun movie there's like cool things in it there's you know beautiful women in it and all this kind of stuff you know Myra Sorvino's in it you know mm. you know how I feel about her you know what I mean and and um, mm. but the um the main thing is like Leguizamo's character of Vinny is kind of like the the guy who can go either way. He's got like he's 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 friends with Richie, who's definitely in his own world. He's doing his own thing, mm. breaking away from the Italian American experience of the Bronx. He's married, yet he cannot stop cheating on his wife because he's hung up in this like Catholic guilt thing of being satisfied with the one that he loves, you know, physically. So he has to. He has all these like desires that he has to seek elsewhere, you know. So yeah. if he can reconcile all these things, he'll be okay. But because he has like his a very strong attachment to the old ways of thinking, these like very conservative Italian American Catholic ideologies, he can't break away from that, and he's ultimately he's torn apart by that. Really. Yeah, like a really, really uh, interesting character. Like he. He makes this all about himself. And uh, I mean, I'm sure we all know someone like that. Like he thinks God doesn't want him to like have cheeky sex with his wife or be into the things that he's into. And he sort of almost uses like the uh, uh, Dave Berkowitz as like an excuse almost, you know what I mean? For his behavior. Yeah, I could see that. Definitely. You know, and then the other yeah. characters, the other guys in the neighborhood are are happy to be ignorant and you know just live in the old the old school way of thinking you know that they don't know any other way you know and what's also interesting is they have a transgender character in this movie too oh yeah yeah okay yeah i, I kind of wrote wrote that down like uh 
as maybe one like thing that I was like, eh, you know, because like, oh, okay, they don't. Richie's from the neighborhood. That's Adrian Brody's character. Yeah. And Richie comes back. Uh, I guess he was in the city for a while, and he looks, you know, like a 1970s punk. And he's speaking in this British accent <laughs> in one of the most cringiest scenes I've ever seen in a fucking movie, man. It ruled because it's like, I, I mean, I, I never knew anyone who did anything like that, but I imagine there are people who were like, you know, like Britain and British punk was like where it was at for like, I, I'm not a big fan of British punk myself, but, um, but you know, except for maybe Discharge or something, and, but they, they were okay. much, much later. You know, I'm not a Pistols fan. I, the Clash were like a, a rock, a rock and roll group, in my opinion. You know, right? Um, punk to me was like the New York Dolls and like Ramones, you know, Stooges, stuff like that. That was like the guys who brought it to the streets. You know, um, yeah, totally. England, the idea that the English had about punk rock music came from the United States. Like the Pistols wouldn't exist without the Ramones. You know what I mean? Mm. So yeah. that's my viewpoint. You know, everyone wants, everyone wants to attack me on that. That's cool. You know, whatever. <laughs> I know like some of the yeah. Brits out there probably have a different point of view. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. But it, it's just funny. I, I think we can relate to it in the sense where like everyone knows someone or maybe you were that person. You discovered something and then like you just you you completely change. Yeah, uh, oh, totally. You know. Overnight, and that's what the, the vibe I got from Richie. Like that fake British accent, dude. That scene goes on forever, and it makes me cringe. Yeah, it does. So man. hard. Adrian Brody is a good actor, man. I, 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 he's been in some questionable stuff, but I think that when he has the right director and, and the right role, he actually does a really great job. Agreed. He's great in this, and I think this was his breakout role. One of them. I, I think so because. Um, I remember seeing this this in the theater, and I was like, "Man, the guy who played Richie was was awesome. I never really seen him before, you know." Yeah. Um, but my point being, like, okay, so the neighborhood doesn't accept Richie with his dog collars and spiky hair and fake French accent, but like, they have this uh, this this. I, I did you say transgender? I just thought he was sort of uh, a, a, a gay man. Well, I'm going to be careful how I put that. <laughs> it's yeah. like, he was. Clearly gay, and he confirms that later, you know. And yeah. but he also is um, dresses like a woman, you know. I mean, the, I don't think he had right. any kind of like hormone therapy or operations done or anything like that. But he was like a cross dresser, I guess. And I know that's probably not sure. a politically correct term, but it is what that's. Yeah, I'm just hey, we're talking about a film that was supposed to take place in the 70s, so I'm going to use the, the terms they would use back then. You know, that was made in the 90s too. That was made in the <laughs> so. 90s, yeah. Yeah, um, that was like the only thing I thought. Like, it seemed weird that they would just shun Richie, but like these kind of ignorant fucking lunkheads are very accepting of of, of that guy. You know, you know what I mean? That yeah, was like the only thing where I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But you know. well, one of the things I have to say about that cuisine, like small small time. Um, now, this is the other thing too about a small about a neighborhood like that in in New York City. Like, people would think that New York is like highly cultured place you know it's like the center of business and all this stuff and center of art and all those things are true however when you go to the outer boroughs these small neighborhoods are you're almost like in the ozarks you know what i mean it's like some of these guys like they live in these places have never left their their, their neighborhood you know they stay there yeah. they, they work as like you know they get a job or a mechanic or whatever they like one guy works construction and he's a plumber but they their whole lives are really focused in this very insular world. So 
it is very much like a small town, like a, one that wherever it was Pelham, Pelham Park, or wherever it was supposed to take place. So these guys all grew up with each other. There's probably a multi generations of their families that live in this town, dating all the way back to the turn of the century when the Italians came over to the to New York. And so they they are accustomed to this guy. And as he changed, it was a gradual, slow change. And they just they don't agree with him. And they probably have harassed this guy. But he's also part. Of, he's first part of the neighborhood, and second, he's part of this overarching gay culture. So that's how I read that mm. situation. Richie disappears and he comes back a completely different guy. And that's why I think there's such a strong reaction to him. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Strike, strike what I said from the record. No, I mean, um, I, I know a lot about Italian American small mindedness, believe me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you didn't grow up in the city, but, uh, you know, this is, is closer like uh, to, to where you grew up than, well, that, than, than where I did. That area that they're in is probably about thirty miles from where I grew up. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was, so you probably knew guys like this. I knew guys exactly like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. Like uh, how this big city, like you know, you go to these like boroughs, they're almost like like small towns. It's the sort of ignorance and fear of anything they don't know. They have such a small world view that, of course, everything they make about themselves, like. Um, they're reading about the son of sand killer in the paper and they just automatically assume he's from their neighborhood. He's from he's someone they probably know. Yeah, exactly. So they start, you know, thinking about who, you know, and this is, this is the really, this the subtext of the whole film really is like the outsider, you know? And yeah, you know, the other, and, and that's obviously something that Spike Lee is something he's, that's a, that's a, a characteristic in a lot of his films. And in this case, since the African American uh, experience is not the focus of this, it's more of like shown through like an Italian American point of view, or even among like people, they can single out someone and make them the other. Yeah, absolutely. I, this is like this seems like it was tailor made for Spike Lee. I think it suits his sensibilities perfectly. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, Mike, but there was some controversy about Spike Lee directing this film back in 1999. Um, I don't remember that. This was his his first film. This is his first film with a predominantly white cast. And, what was uh, the controversy? Well, you know, Spike Lee had made some, made some comments in the past. Uh, this director, Norman Jewison, Jewison, was supposed to direct uh, Malcolm X. And, and he was just like, respectfully, like, a black man should make that film. You know, and like, made some comments about white filmmakers, you know, making films of a predominantly black cast maybe they don't under have the understanding to really make the movie what it should be and so i think it was sort of spike lee's past comments coming coming to bite him in the ass like well what is spike lee doing making a a film with an all you know majority white cast there's something like that it's been a while i don't remember yeah I mean, like, um, but I remember there being talk about that, like saying, like, Spike Lee's a hypocrite or something. Now, now that you mention it, I vaguely remember that. But I mean, I mean, he made he he started making films at a very young age, you know, and um, yeah, you know, you're obviously very passionate about these beliefs, and uh, I'm not going to agree or disagree because I think there are there are kernels of truth to a lot of the things he's saying. Like, for example. You know, didn't like John Wayne play like a Native American in a movie like back in like yeah, he played Genghis Khan. He plays like yeah. I mean, that's ludicrous, yeah. right? You know, yeah, so completely. 
what he says, I think, is is a little bit connected to that in some ways, where it's like if you're going to make a film about a uh, a black cultural icon, then it would make sense to me that a black director and or or you know screenwriter would be involved in the production of that because it's part of like the yeah. cultural experience, you know. I totally agree. I with mean, that, a white yeah. guy could go ahead and make it, but it probably won't wouldn't have the same insights that like a black director would would have, you know. Right. But yeah, totally. But I think Spike Lee is so tuned in to New York City and uh, that that I think, he, like I said, he is very qualified to, to make this movie. I think he understands uh, in New York. I think he understands that sort of mentality uh, of these cousins, as you say. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, I think this like this is right up Spike Lee's alley, you know, like, yeah. Uh, and also the point, like I was saying, is like the other isn't always necessarily uh, a racially different person than the, than the, the you know, that's the, in this case, the other is Richie, you know, a guy from the neighborhood, you know, Italian American, yeah. white guy, whatever, whatever you consider. Some people don't consider Italians white, but you know, whatever. That's true. Yeah. You know, maybe some of you listeners out there in the South might speak to that, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and maybe Spike Lee doesn't really get like the 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 punk scene entirely. No, but that I, for sure like, he doesn't get that. No, definitely. Yeah, well, but I mean, like, it, it didn't like make me cringe the depiction of punk rock in the seventies in this. Like, I, I do believe that was filmed in CBGBs, the CV scenes. Yeah, it looks like CVs, definitely. Yeah, it did look like it to me. The only the, the song that they sang, like Richie's band. Oh yeah. my god. Like, like it was pretty. That was pretty bad. Well, also, um, yeah, I wasn't going to shows in the seventies, obviously, but uh, right. the, the uh, let's I'll speak more like the hardcore scene, and I have to believe the punk scene was the same way. Just from guys like Eugene Robinson would tell me stories about this, where it's like it was like a, it wasn't just like white people that went to shows and at CBS in the Lower East Side back then. It was like no, no, not all very, that. very, very multicultural, and that's always been the the kind of like thing in New York is that all every every type of person was involved in a scene like that, and everyone was able to like figure out a way to coexist, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Somewhat. I mean, unless, I think, unless until until crews started showing up and beating everyone up at shows, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of like when I started getting into it, like the early 90s is when like hardcore took on that sort of vibe. Uh, Randy and I talk about it all the time. Like he's like, that's when hardcore got dumb. Yeah, no, totally. But um, but I really liked how he captured like the, like you said, like Richie is the other and sort of this like weird, uh, you know, like – people didn't understand punk rock and like, it was like evil and satanic. And I love the scene where, where uh, Vinny and Mia Servina are going to CBGBs all dressed up, you yeah. know, thinking they're going to go see their friend's band. Like, like, they got like this disco like, outfit. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, I, I don't feel, I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in here, Vinny. <laughs> you know, I just see like, I, I, like I, I, I skeeved this place. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which I understand. Hey, yeah. Anyone, I mean, CBS is long gone, but that wasn't. It wasn't like a, a. It was a horrible fucking place, man. It really was, you know. Oh my god! I mean, yeah. There's a, like, I mean, I know you've played there a bunch with you, uh, with you. I played well. there with you. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was sort of a badge of honor, like fucking playing CBGBs, this legendary place. But then you realize, like, dude, this place is a fucking dump. You yeah. Know? Oh, dude, totally. And back like i mean i never was there in the 70s obviously you know but yeah. 
even through the 90s when you went there, that neighborhood was a shot, like just really, really sketchy, you know what I mean? And, you know, all the way yeah, up until yeah. I would say maybe right around the time that they closed that place down, it, it was kind of kind of shabby, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, the bathroom at CV's is legendary. Everyone's, you know, heard about that. And, yeah. Uh, but I think he captured it really well, the sort of misunderstanding of, of something. And I found it also uh, fascinating that, like, again, this movie is 1999, and it's dealing with themes that are very relevant today. Yeah, and, and like, those themes have always been around, though. That's the thing, you know. It's, um, like, all this, like, othering. It is more mainstream now, but it's always kind of been there, though. You know what I'm trying to say? And and it's totally, like totally. people are acting like this division is like a new thing. There's always been a division. I mean, you know, like traveling through like some of the less enlightened parts of this country, the things that you run up against, you know, all the way back yeah. to the 90s. You know, I was called uh, some kind of slur uh, when I w- we were getting gas in Montana one time, you know. And I don't even think I looked mm-hmm. that weird. You know, I, I just had like, a, you know, I was just not from the area, you know. So there's like, that's always been going on. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's always been a thing. Um, even like, it's funny, like they kind of touch on conspiracy theories a little bit in this movie where one guy uh, thinks that Reggie Jackson is uh, is uh, the son of Sam. <laughs> Like, I, I feel like I could, like, flip, turn on, a, you know, go on uh, YouTube and, and see some similar, like, conspiracy theorists ranting about something crazy like that. Like, uh, um, and, and just, like, misinformation. And if, if you have a small world view, uh, how you are going to make this, everything relate to you. Like I said, they think that the, the guys from the neighborhood and they start, they start making a list of people who they think that the, the, the son of Sam is. Right, there's like a Vietnam vet who uh, you know he lives alone. He drives a cab, so obviously he's a guy. So they they roll yeah. up on this dude and like beat him up and everything. And uh, but I gotta be honest, I I always feel like they were in their primate minds. They were trying to figure out a way. They always had it out for Richie as soon as he came home back from the city, you know. And like yeah, you know, it, they needed to figure out a way where they could alienate him and do stuff to him. Right, so there was a police sketch that was going around, and they were like, "Oh, check it out! It looks like Richie." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they draw little like spikes on the uh, on the drawing, so it looks like Richie's hair. Yeah, it looks like and, Richie's hair. Um, yeah, and, and there's an incident at a diner, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where um, you know it's Richie and and, and Vinny, and uh, all the other. There's a a couple of guys in there don't who don't like Richie's appearance and yeah. causes a whole scene, and uh, they won't serve. Uh, I don't know why I like this line so much. And John Lee's like, he's just got guys in the neighborhood to get a couple of roast beef sandwiches. Come Dude, on. This part hit me hard <laughs> because, uh, well, first of all, the scene is brilliant. These guys have like bowling shirts and stuff like that, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like they're just like totally characters, you know. And then yeah. uh, Richie and and Vinny are sitting at a table, and they're just like, "Yeah, let's get you know like a, you know, turkey Swiss." Yeah, you know, we're at us, we're at it. The thing is, see, we're out of turkey. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're out of that too. You know. It's all right. Do me a favor. Get me, uh, you know, ham and egg, ham and ham and cheese or whatever. We're out of bread. <laughs> you know. <it's> like, 
and they like uh <laughs> that's when it all comes to uh comes to fruition that it's like these other guys you know the guy who grew up in the neighborhood because he's different they they can't stand the sight of him anymore right yeah exactly and uh you know richie just says basically fuck you breaks a bottle over his head like oh you're scared of me like now nah, yep. you should really be fucking scared mm-hmm. of me you yep. know yep. and it's sort of like you know the <laughs> You know, he uh, it, it obviously works to his disadvantage because when the guys from the neighborhood hear about this, like, oh, Richie, he's licking his own blood off. Yeah, yeah, head. exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just on his hand, clearly, you know. Um, and there's a great scene after that between Vinny and, and Richie where um, Richie talks about everyone's got two personalities, you know, the one you're born with and the one the world gives you. And... That further sort of cements, like, in Vinny's mind that this guy, you know, he might be the son of Sam. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it, it's funny. They just draw these conclusions. They make these connections, and, and it's it's just it's interesting, man. And, and also, like, you know, I, I related to Richie, man. Like, when I was a kid, like, stuff like that kind of happened to me a little bit, you know, like when I was in high school. Oh, sure. You know, I'm sure you experienced yeah. the same thing once, like, you know, you're not wearing like capizios and like, you know, like whatever fucking stupid clothes your kids wore back in the '80s. It was like, oh, totally. You know, oh, you fucking worship Satan. You know, I'm like, you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. You know, like that's that was my answer sometimes to these people. You know, and yeah, exactly. And then you never think that could be your undoing. You know, like, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I remember in high school, uh, me and all my friends were like brought into the principal's office to talk to a detective because there was a string of cats uh, being killed. That was big back then, uh, I remember. Yeah, and they literally brought in like all of my friends and like because you know we were the punks, we all wore black, mm-hmm. and they just they like and I just remember being interviewed by a cops and like and they're like, "Well, we know you have some involvement in this," and I was like, "I'm I'm a vegetarian. Why would I kill a cat?" <laughs> and it, it was just clearly obvious, like round up the weird kids, you know. It's and, been the uh, age old. That was a very real thing. Yeah, dude, it's been the age old experience, man. You know, it's like that's that's always been the way it was, you know. And, and um, you know, I I was like, when as a kid, I was into sports, and you know, I played football and I wrestled and all this stuff. But that did not stop people from picking on me and singling me out once I started to become my own individual person, you know. And, yeah. uh, and that's why it's, I yeah. discovered martial arts, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Now you can you go back and fuck them up. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I forgot where the fuck I was going with that. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. So they decide that Richie is is the son the son of Sam. You know, and then, yeah. But so they're gonna use uh, they're gonna use Vinny as like a um as a as a a decoy to lure him so they can deal with him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're gonna like because there's just like you know another very common uh, thing that, that that rings true today: mob justice, mob mentality. Yep. And you know it's obviously taken on a different form now. Well, maybe not even necessarily. Not necessarily. It wasn't that long ago? White supremacists were marching around with tiki torches. Not that it's still happening. <laughs> it's like I, yeah, I mean exactly. we're like inches yeah. away from that again right now in this country. You know. Yeah. But, you know, the whole mob mentality, this sort of pile on this, this, this idea uh, that, um, you know, we know, you know, like the cops can't catch him. We got to catch him. We have to deal with this. I, I feel like it's a it's a common thing today. And a lot of it 
And it just shows like, yeah, they're, they're, they're complete ignorance. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know what they're talking about. They just decided that Richie's a murderer, you know? Yeah, exactly. Just, just for being different. You know, uh, he's, you know, he comes from a world they don't understand. And, you know, Richie has somewhat of a double life too. And, uh, you know what I mean? Like, so the, the more pieces of this information that get to him, like they're like, well, obviously, yeah, it's gotta be him. This guy's leading a double life. He, uh, he's into this, like, I couldn't quite get like what his like job was. Oh yeah. Did, okay. Like, he's so, like a stripper. Yeah. So, uh, I, I've heard about stuff like this, you know what I mean? Like, you know, reading books about like, uh, you know, Times Square and all that kind of stuff where and like, and also dudes that were in on the streets kind of like from that scene. You know, or like would do like turn tricks and be like these male dancers and stuff like that. And uh, actually on the Rialto Report, um, a a podcast that Mike and I listened to, Mike Mike turned me on to it. It's about, okay. they talk a little bit about more with the women that were in the punk scene that ended up doing porn and doing all this other stuff. So, you know, there's also uh, other, other, you know, guys would do the same stuff. So that's kind of what Richie was doing. He was with Ruby from the neighborhood and she became a punk. They moved back to yeah. the Lower East, they moved to the Lower East Side and they had to make ends meet and it was they fell into that whole meat grinder of porn and prostitution and all that sort of stuff, which is like kind of a um you know, kind of a realistic story really, you know. So now okay. that's that's why uh you know, that's where we see Michael Imperioli. <laughs> that's <what we> <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got a nice cock on him. Yeah, you're lucky lady. I play such a fucking sleazy piece of shit with his cowboy hat. Fucking cowboy hat, that that sketchy like mustache and everything. Yeah, (laughs) it must be so much fun to come up with these characters. You know what I mean? Oh God, yeah, exactly. And you know, Michael Imperioli, right? He's probably like, yeah, I'm I'm going to play this guy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's like a a leather cowboy hat. Yeah, because like, he wrote the movie. He could have probably gotten any part he wanted. He chose that one. Good for him, man. I, I love that. He was perfect, too, you know. Oh, he was great, yeah. And, and what's interesting, too, is like they're, they're not doing this for money for drugs. They're just doing it to survive. You know, it's just like a, a job for them, which, which, which is kind of cool. You don't see that in movies a lot. Usually you see people... You know, like they're strung out, so they need money, and you know, you know what I mean. Like, I, I thought it was kind of cool, especially since it was made in 1999. It's just like, oh, it's just something they do. Actually, you don't even really see either of them getting into drugs, aside from maybe some weed. No. You know, they're not shooting heroin yeah. or you know doing anything like that. They're just smoking weed here and there. Yeah, exactly. Is any like like uh, Vinny is the strung out guy. He's he's the fucked up one, which is interesting too. Like. Vinny thinks he's like, you know, he wants to be this straight and narrow moral man of God, but he, he it's against his his nature. Like he, he's a fucking, you know, he he's he's really like shows very like he's just, you know, he's uh, some sort of like, you know, sex addict, something like yeah. that. Well, Rich, he yeah. Well Richie can't control himself. Exactly. Richie they they frame him up as a deviant, right? Yeah. But Richie is the one who's the deviant. He can't He's got his Vinny. beautiful wife, Vinny. Sorry, I got the names back backwards. Yeah, yeah what you said. <laughs> He's got this yeah. beautiful Mira Sorvino at home, right? And he cannot stop cheating on her, and he because he's afraid of confronting his desires with her, and he's doing drugs and like creating all this tension and anxiety and just ruin in his life 
you know, and then he's all strung out basically. And, and his, uh, the guys in the neighborhood kind of, uh, you know, exploit him to, to put them in a position to get at, uh, at, uh, Adrian Brody's character. Yeah. Uh, the studio 54 scene, which leads to like, uh, the orgy scene. <laughs> and I, Vinny's handling of that is just like, uh, it, it, it's, not humorous, but sort of maybe darkly funny. I don't know. You know, like he all he finally, you know, he's got his wife there and they're having this like orgy. And then just the guilt <laughs> that comes after that. Oh, man. Yeah, totally. In the graveyard, they're driving to the graveyard. He's just looking at his wife and disgusting. He's like, you fucking whore, you piece of shit. But and then she finally lets it all out. It's like, you're the piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like such like a uh, an irony, you know. That he, you know, or maybe not an irony because, like, he just that Italian American Catholic thing. You know, you're not supposed to do things like that with your wife. You know, there's like, it's sad. Yeah, you know, it really is. It's sad. You know, you see this stuff even like the Sopranos movies, like even like anything with the mafia, like the mother. You know, and then yeah. everyone's got like a gumad on the side. You know what I mean? And it's yeah, like, exactly. And they yeah. do the, all their dirty stuff with her. You know, and it's like it's rather than try to have a healthy relationship with the person that you want to be with. You know? Yeah, it's very like yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people who can relate to that. But what I found funny is like Vinny tries to like rationalize this. Like Richie's got me. You know, he's in a cult. He's got me thinking all crazy. <laughs> you know, like it's not my fault. Like Richie's in a cult. Like. It, 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 it's just you know hilarious that that's just funny that's sort of like nothing's my fault you know yeah. <laughs> this is all Richie's fault lack of responsibility um, yep. yeah exactly like Vinny is the architect of his own undoing and he doesn't seem to want to confront that at all he's looking for excuses for for his behavior now the, the interesting thing about that it's like on first analysis you might want to say oh well the guy's too weak to really be his own person, but you got to understand like just the, um, relentless like culture of that, which the guy, the guy is grew up in that neighborhood is probably his family, probably how multiple generations are there. Everyone he knows is there. It's not the easiest thing in the world to break out from that world, you know, to, to right. give up, you know, like ideologically change, you know, and if, especially with the Christian element, you know, the whole Catholic thing, like you really, people, people that subscribe to that, believe that in their soul, that this is the true way of living. So it's right. You know, it's a little bit of weakness, but it's also kind of a Herculean effort to get out from underneath that method of thinking, you know? Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I get that. I mean, like, I'm not, um, I'm not going to like, you know, give him any excuses for that. You know what I mean? I, you know, but it's like, that's, an understanding, I guess, for what his behavior is. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah, no, totally. Um, I gotta say, though, like, what did you think about the ending of this? Because, I mean, Spike Lee usually, like, brings his, really drives his point home and always kind of fully, like, realizes his stories. The only, like, sort of weak spot I see in this is it just, this movie just sort of ends. Yeah, I agree with that. Um you know, inevitably they catch up to Richie. Yeah, and he gets he gets beat beat up pretty very badly actually, and that's kind of the climax of the of the story really. And then there's nothing, nothing really seems resolved, or you know what I mean. You don't know what what's going on in the future. There's no conclusion to anything, I guess. You know. 
Right, there's no no one really suffers like the uh, consequences of their actions because they don't kill Richie; they just beat beat him up. You know, you know what I mean. Whereas like and uh, do the right thing, Spike Lee's masterpiece. You know, it all ends like all this tension ends with a, a murder and a right. riot. And this just sort of ends with, oh, Richie gets beat up at the end. Oh, you and know? you know, concurrently, while they're doing that, Berkowitz gets arrested by the cops as the son of Sam. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's from, well, where was he from, too? He was, like, uh, so not even, he wasn't nearby, right? He was, like, they were so insistent he was from their neighborhood, and he just it wasn't even anywhere near I want to say that Berkowitz, the neighborhood he was from, I think it was in Queens, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Maybe. Um. Yeah, the movie kind of like feels like you know they it's leading to this sort of tragedy. Like the guy's already been caught, and here is like these the the, the uh, Gougines think they caught him, and like you know they're gonna bring him to you know uh, the, the, the sort of mafia guy in the neighborhood for for, for justice. And yeah, he just sort of gets beat up at the end. I want to say that uh, they don't even really acknowledge they they they. They beat him up, but they had no intention of really putting him in with the cops or you know they ended up turning him in or anything like that either. Right. I, yeah. Which leads me to believe that they were bringing him to uh, you know the local mobster Luigi, and I thought you know what I got from that was like yeah they were gonna you know, whack him or whatever you know. Yeah, whack him. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. Hold yeah. on a second. I'm trying to. That's what I out. think. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's really kind of the only like you know minor complaint. There's a few other things. Um, you know, Richie and Vinny are obviously very close. You never really get a really good sense of of why like they're close, and like Vinny just is the only guy that doesn't shun him. I guess maybe they probably had a strong bond before he left, but uh, they, they don't really they don't really explicitly say that. Interesting thing. He Berkowitz is from Brooklyn, actually. Mm, and okay. uh, his name was Richard Bourne, Richard David Falco. So he's Italian. Yeah, Interesting, okay. right? All right. Yeah. 40, History lesson right here on Necromaniacs, people. The 44 caliber killer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, overall, I mean, what did you think of this? It's been, you know, 20, 24 years since this came out. Uh, it, it, did you uh, see... Uh, watching it through, you know, your guys today. What, what did you think of it? I still enjoyed what, it. What do you get? This? I still loved it. I thought yeah. it was great. You know, I I, I don't give it like a, a perfect store score, but I give it a four out of five. I agree. Yeah. Four out of five for me too. Um, interesting enough, like uh, this is not regarded as one of Spike Lee's better films. You know, in a, in a way, I can understand that because um, you know there isn't like some like overt political. Uh, you know, meaning to anything. And I mean, my favorite Spike Lee is Clockers, actually. That's a great one. Yeah. That, I think uh, that movie is awesome. the 25th Hour. 25th Hour is another good one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know? There was Spike Lee just has, has a handful of just great movies. Like, I probably like eight or nine that are just great. Uh, I, you know what? I think this one is maybe towards the bottom of that list, but this, I think this is one of his, his better movies. I think maybe at the time people expected something different from Spike Lee. And that's maybe not why this is so highly regarded, but you know, seeing it now, it's just, you know, when he's got this huge body of work now. Um, yeah. I, I really like this. It's a really interesting uh, take on the genre. Um, 
I think Spike Lee understands New York better than most filmmakers. And oh, this is this is a great movie. It was really fun to to, to revisit. Yeah, it's definitely in the middle or lower middle of his work. You know, like I said, Clockers is like probably one of my favorites. That one's like it's um Michael Imperioli is in that too. Yes, yes, he is small role. Uh, yeah, Cro- crooked I, Jojo. Clockers <laughs> do the right thing. Uh, Mo Better Blues, Twenty Fifth Hour. Those, those are like uh, that's top tier Spike Lee for me. And this isn't quite there, but it's you know it's in the same realm as uh, you know he got game or um, I'm drawing a blank here. It's certainly not old boy. No, <laughs> you, know? you know it's funny. Uh, it's interesting that in Clockers, it's based on the Richard Price novel. I don't know if you you know yes. Richard Price is a very prolific crime writer he's also written a bunch of good screenplays out there um his character the the way that he wrote it price wrote it is from the cop's point of view in the book and the way spike lee twist flipped it and it's like from the drug dealer's perspective right yeah Yeah, that's right yeah yeah, the, the movie was was quite different from the book right yeah, I mean, yeah, it told it from the from the story of, of it's it's just different perspectives on the same kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the first film Spike Lee was a director for hire on. Like he didn't write. Uh, this wasn't a, a project he originated. Yeah, I think like this came to him. I think that's right, actually, because there was. Um, I remember reading about how there was some pushback on him changing that up a little bit in the in the script. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, hey, I, I, I find myself digging out my uh, Spike Lee Blu-rays and DVDs since watching this because, uh, you know, it's been a while since I just, you know, watched a bunch of his films and uh, it's really sparked that. Like, I, I'm ready to watch, like, you know, Inside Man, 25th Hour, Do the yeah. Right Thing, all, all those movies, Malcolm X. Like, um, Spike Lee is just such an interesting filmmaker. Even his failures are, are kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah. I agree. All my DVDs. Yeah, wow. Now that's that's pushing it. I think a little bit because the original is so, like, such an iconic film. It's untouchable. I uh, and he was a very odd choice for it. Uh, I just he didn't really bring a lot of passion to that. It felt like it. Just watching it is like this doesn't feel like Spike Lee. Like, like uh, on all cylinders. You know what I mean? But this movie we just watched does. Yeah. Absolutely. All my Blu-rays and DVDs are in boxes right now, packed. So it's hard to... Yeah. You know, I only have like a handful of things available to me right now. Right, yeah. yeah. Mine are unpacked, but like they're just <laughs> kind of on the floor. I still haven't bought shelves for them. Yeah, dude. I, everything's off the walls right now. I got like blank walls. The shelves are empty. There's a bunch of boxes. You know, it's like this very strange environment to live in for the next couple of weeks, next few weeks. Well, hopefully your neighbor's dog doesn't start talking to you. <laughs> no, my cat started talking to me, but that's always been <laughs> yeah. <the case>. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> well, I think that that about covers it, man. This was a this was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, now I'm glad you brought this one up, man. And uh, yeah, for everyone else out there who called in, thanks. Keep them coming. Anyone who hasn't called in, feel free to use that number. We'll uh, and we have a nice list of stuff now, which we can uh, we can go through, and and we're going to start covering some of those films. Yeah, I would love to, uh, to take a crack at burnt offerings. It's it's been quite a while since I've seen it, but I remember loving it. Yeah, 
And uh, yeah, remember to go out and uh, check out the other Horsemen's podcasts. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Take care, everyone. I just never know why